Hi, this is Howard Bloom, and what we're doing is making sound. Yes, we are making sound. Hello, Howard Bloom. Hi, Jan. Hey, man. It's uh, it is such a pleasure and an honor to have you on my show. Hey, everybody. This is Making Sound with Jan Close, episode sixty-seven, with my guest, the illustrious. I can't even. I can't even believe you're here, man. It's it's going to be so great to talk to you. Howard Bloom is here with me. Howard Bloom, folks. If you don't know who that is, you will. And uh, I'm t- going to tell you a little bit about him. Uh, Howard Bloom is an American author, born in Buffalo, New York, and we share the same birthday, June 25th. Happy almost birthday, my friend. Yes, coming up in eight days. In eight, in something like that, and. Uh, you now live in book in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, folks, if you don't know any of these artists, then you know you you uh, you've been living under a rock for the last forty to forty years, forty some years. Mister Bloom was the publicist for. Oh my God, I'm going to drop so many names right now. It's going to make me sick. Prince, Billy Joel, Styx, Michael Jackson, Cindy Lauper, Talking Heads, Lionel Richie. ZZ Top, Bette Midler, ACDC, Simon and Garfunkel, John Mellencamp, Earth, Wind and Fire. I love Earth, Wind and Fire. And uh, Kiss. He also handled Bob Marley during his Uprising tour. So there's, there is so much to talk about, but I also want to talk about your life as an author because you've written several books. And uh, I haven't read any of them, I will fully admit, but I want uh-huh. you to recommend to me which one I should start with. Start with the first book that I wrote, The Lucifer Principle. The Lucifer Principle. Yes, I've some people call this. it their Bible. Um, it reads as if it was written tomorrow. Um, there's a chapter on the nuclear threat from Iran, for example, which is highly relevant right now. Mm-hmm. And and just to fill in a little bit of background, it is totally mind-blowing that I should have been involved in rock and roll or popular music at all. Yeah because I got involved in theoretical physics and microbiology at the age of 10 and started yes. reading and you books got it. a day. Yes, and you, this is something I wanted to ask you about, because you're into immunology. Right. Which is a hot, hot topic. Yes, and it's a hot topic because the immune system is a sort of generalizable model of a complex adaptive system or a group learning machine, uh, a group brain. And group brains are a big topic right now. So back to the background. So I I started getting my first scientific achievements when I was 12. I co-designed a computer that won some science fair awards. I built my first Boolean algebra machine. Uh, I was taken for a meeting with the head of the graduate physics department at the University of Buffalo to discuss um, the Doppler shift and Big Bang versus steady state theory of the universe. At 16, I was working in the world's largest cancer research lab um, over the summer. And I was supposed to be doing research on the immune system, but I really wasn't. What I was doing is every day at the cafeteria at lunch, I was trying to solve something called the CPT problem, the charge parity and time problem. If matter and antimatter are created in equal amounts at the same time, where's all the antimatter? And I created a theory of the beginning, middle, and end of the universe that explained, that answered that question, and then explained something that wouldn't be discovered for another 38 years. Today, it's called dark energy, the acceleration of galaxies away from themselves. Dark matter, Um, also referred to as dark matter? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, no, this is not dark matter. This is different. 
because mm-hmm. um, we won't go into how it's different. Um, you're not you're not accomplished at all. No, I'm not accomplished <laughs> at all. But um, I recently discovered I went back to one of the very first science fiction books that I read when I was 10, which is the Foundation series. Back then, it was the Foundation trilogy by Isaac Asimov. Mm-hmm. And I discovered that there was a key phrase in that book, and it's um, mass behavior. He posits a science of mass behavior, which is not something that really exists, um, but should. And so my whole life has been about mass behavior, from the mass behavior of quarks and atoms and stars and galaxies uh, to the mass behavior of human beings to what we're doing right now while we're having this conversation. Mm -hmm. And um, so in pursuit of that, I had an opportunity when I was graduating from NYU uh, of either taking up one of my four graduate school fellowships in what's today called neuroscience or going into popular culture. And Jan, I knew nothing about popular culture. Popular culture was the music of the kids who used to beat me up. I listened to Rachmaninoff, Stravinsky, Bartok, etc. And um, I took the path of popular culture. Because I didn't feel I was going to learn. I have what to interrupt, I and I have to interrupt and ask you why the Russian composers. Uh, God knows. I mean, my grandfather, though he was uh, Jewish, and generally Jews were heavily discriminated against. Um, they were relegated to a part of Russia that was called the Pale. Today, it's Belarus, mm-hmm. um, White Russia. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, he worked for the Tsar. He was a courier. I mean, that's about the lowest thing that you can be but at least he was part of the official czar's system. So I carry some sort of Russian legacy. And, and remember, Mozart, Beethoven, um, those people, Vivaldi, um, they're also a critical part of what I was listening to back then. Mm-hmm. So uh, by accident, I ended up in rock and roll in a field that I had known was, nothing about just two was, years earlier. Was this music playing at home? Was this your, your parents, grandparents, and, and how did you take this music in? And what was the format? There was no, in the beginning when I was three or four years old, there was a radio. Um, and now we're going to Buffalo, New York, yes? To Buffalo, New York, right. And we had an apartment the size of a Kraft cheese box. <laughs> and my, my father was drafted, even though he had a child and he was 33 years old and he was nearsighted. Um, America was desperate. It was World War II. Wow. Um, so my we're talking mom, 1940s? What, what 1943, year? 1944, 1945. Mm-hmm. My mom uh, had to take over the small liquor store that he was beginning, um, which and that was a 12-hour-a-day job minimum. So I never saw my mom. Mm-hmm. And she, she was a smart woman, but she had a choice that she didn't realize. She could hire a cleaning woman to take care of me, in which case the focus of the cleaning woman would be on keeping the postage stamp sized rug vacuumed. Um, or she could hire a, uh, a babysitter, <laughs> in which case the job of the person in the house would have been to take care of me. She chose to hire a cleaning woman. So I, I was locked behind one of those folding wooden barricades, a uh-huh. child gate um, in a, a dark, um, cold uh, corridor with a cold hardwood floor, which I remember vividly because I was on my hands and knees. I was a baby. At at that age? You remember this? Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so that's the way I was raised. So, so you I were was, two? I was uh, two, one, two, three um, during those years, and possibly even one. I'm not sure how my yeah. mom took care of me before that. Mm-hmm. But um, so I was raised as an outsider. And when I hit the age of four and my mom finally let me outdoors to congregate with the kids down the block, they didn't want to have anything to do with me unless they wanted to chase someone around the block, in which case I was their favorite candidate. Um, So I had parents who weren't there. Um, I had other kids who wanted nothing to do with me. You didn't have any kind of social interaction. No. How did how did so how did you how do you think you overcame that? I have no idea, Jan, except that it it gave me a gift. It made me an outsider. And the role of an outsider, for me, has meant being the watchman um, on the periphery of the group, watching for dangers, the role of a prophet in the Hebrew Bible, Um, the role of Someone where did that sees... notion where did that notion come from that what you just said like what did you you know this is this is really interesting because today I told one of my I, I coach voice right I coach right. I have a few students uh, singers and one of my um, students his name is Norm uh, you know it I'm I don't think he would mind if I would talk about him he's a super great guy he makes me laugh during every lesson I love him right <laughs> he's one of my favorites. And he, but he tends to, when he uh, sings, he tends to move his his hands and arms right. quite a bit, almost like he's conducting himself. Right. Right. So he he was like, I really have to work on this. I'm really trying to, you know, not move so much and and not conduct, you know. And I'm I, we talk about it during the classes, and I say, move your arm, you know. And I try to make suggestions. So what? But what I did today. When he talked about it, because I looked at some videos that he sent me and he wanted, you know, give me, he wanted my feedback on them. And I said, you know what? I want you to use the conducting and put it in your act. Right. Good. Find find a song or a number where you can actually start conducting during the song. Right. And he was like, that's a great idea. And I was like, thank you very much. You know, but if, for me, like my job is to find... And this goes for myself, too, in my own life. And just like you did this for your life, you found a role to play that created meaning in your life. Right. But it took a long time. It really took a long time. So because I didn't have other friends, (laughs) but because I didn't have friends to play with, when I suddenly discovered reading at the age of 10, um, I was able to read two books a day. I read one book a day under the desk at school and another book when I got home. They were science and science fiction. So by the time I was 12 and had that meeting with the head of the graduate physics department at the University of Buffalo, I was very well schooled um, in things like theoretical physics and cosmology. So I would imagine that my mom took me there and had twisted arms to get five minutes with this guy. And instead, we spent an hour in his office, again, discussing Big Bang Theory versus Steady State Theory. And Jan, it was the year when the founder of Steady State Theory was absolutely convinced that he would destroy Big Bang Theory and no one would ever hear of it again. Mm -hmm. Um, But the two of us, the head of the graduate science department and I took it very seriously, Big Bang Theory. 
And when we came out of his office, he put his hand on my shoulder and said to my mom, you don't have to save for grad school for him. He'll get fellowships in theoretical physics at any school he wants. So, but, but this thing of mass behavior was in my head and something else was in my head. And Jan, I okay, have- I got it. I got it backtrack because there's, okay. there's a lot there. There's a lot there. So I love this. Um, so the, the, how do you, how old were you at this point? Like, and, and did you just go to the library to get these books? How did you find them? Did you, did you, and I, so I need to ask you what your first experience of television, did you have a television at home? And when was uh, television that? didn't come in until I was five years old. It wasn't part of my formative process at all. You weren't, um, you weren't fascinated. You weren't interested in the television really. Um, you know, I watched a few shows, but not, not that many. My brother, three years younger than I am was born into a house with a television. Hmm. And the result was that he was a television addict. Um, but that didn't happen to me. And, right. and I'm, I'm very lucky it didn't happen to me. I wouldn't have been able to read. Right. So, so did you just go to the local library to, to pick up the books? I went to the local library. The librarians came to know me better than my mother. They realized <laughs> something. You know, there was a whole section of the library that was forbidden for children. I was supposed to stick with the children's section. And the librarians seemed to instantly see that I belonged in the adult section. Um, so I read my way through every science fiction and science book in that library. And then I started going to a drugstore where they were constantly putting out new science fiction books and using my lunch money um, to buy science fiction books and books like the, uh, uh, the Blue Book, the first major study of UFOs um, from yeah. roughly 1948. I want to um, talk to you about that too. So, so do you think you you learned to read by yourself? How did you I, learn to read? Because you started reading. You were reading already by the time you got to grade school. But no, not quite. I was my first grade teacher told my mom, "You have to take him to a psychologist for testing. He's mentally retarded." You got to do and, something about this kid. Right. And every school assignment, you did at your desk and then you handed your paper to the kid in front of you, handed it down to the teacher's desk. And uh, in every one of these exercises, I came out last, dead last. They gave a gold star for the kid who came out first, a silver star for the kid who came out second. Mm -hmm. And I was last. And one day I came in second last. And my teacher was so blown away that she gave me a gold star. So, um, no, everybody assumed I was retarded. I was late to learn how to write. I was late to learn how to read. And then it, when I was 10, the uh, my next door neighbors were radiologists, x-ray uh, doctors, uh, male and female and their kids. And uh, the mother called me over to her house and said, look, my kids have gone off to summer camp and I have this reading room and it's filled with books and why didn't you take advantage of it? So she had all 38 Oz books, you know, The Wizard of Oz became a series. And I read my way through every Oz book that wow. summer, all 38 of them. So that's when I started to be capable of reading. Mm -hmm. um, and then I just didn't stop. I didn't stop. I mean, when I was in fourth grade, I read a few horse books and I tried to read a Hardy Boys book. Um, I tried to read a, a couple of things that were age appropriate. But frankly, I was not just not interested mm -hmm. in the age appropriate stuff. Not at all. Um, so so at this point, people were 
including people at the school, at your school, at your grade school, were catching on to the fact that you were different? My teachers say to me, think of it, Jan, you love people who pay attention to you. Mm -hmm. And I was not paying any attention to my teachers because I was reading books under the desk. At least they let me get away with it. But I was not popular with my teachers. So there was no adult supervising this. I was left free to do whatever the hell I wanted. And that was phenomenal for me. And also something else happened um, in my, when I was 12 years old, I suddenly realized I was an atheist. It was probably a response to stuff that Bertrand Russell had written. And, but I realized- Were you that re I, raised religiously until then? No, my parents were religious, but not observant. Meaning they only went to the temple if a friend's kid was having a bar mitzvah or a wedding. Yeah. Um, and then they went for the high holidays. So at any rate, um, I had this sudden realization. If I am an atheist and I confess to it, I'm going to blow the only party that I've ever been invited to in Buffalo, New York, my hometown. I'm going to blow my bar mitzvah and all of the presents. Yeah. So I carried out a psychological subterfuge. I somehow put that realization that I was an atheist in a closet in my mind. Um, and proceeded with my bar mitzvah. And then it took me two months to write all the thank you notes for all the presents. And then, <laughs> and uh -huh. then finally, at, at the end of August, when I finished all of this, um, I... You came out. Not exactly. The, the high holidays were coming. Oh, boy. And yes, I did come out. But my parents felt absolutely the one thing you must do every year is attend the high holiday services. Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And so they forced me into a suit, which I don't know how they accomplished that, Jan, because I hate suits. And you already had told them that at this point, the concept of God was not something that you I don't went think, along no, with? No, I never had discussions with my parents. So I hadn't told them anything about this. But they got me into the car. They had a four blue... Of, four-door blue Fraser. They got me into the back seat. They uh, drove me all the way to Richmond Avenue, this gorgeous elm tree-lined avenue that the synagogue was on. And then I refused to go any further. And uh, I had a revelation. I was holding on to the sturdy American-made door frame of this four-door blue Fraser. My parents were pulling at my ankles, literally willing to drag me up <laughs> the street like a sack of meat. And I realized this. Galileo revolutionized science by taking a device, it was called a spyglass, that was used to look at the horizon, was used horizontally to see enemy troops coming. It was designed in Holland to see the Spanish troops before the Spanish troops knew they were being seen. And Galileo dared take this instrument for horizontal viewing, and he turned it up at the sky. Now, that was an outrageous act. Everybody knew what was up in the sky. That's God's underwear. That's <laughs> God's living room rug. Mm -hmm. um, and in the land of God's, everything has to be perfect. And Aristotle said the perfect form was the circle. So everything up there was obviously a perfect circle because it was God's underwear. Um, and Galileo had the audacity to look up God's shorts. Um, and he discovered that uh, things were not perfect circles up there. Things looked like rocks. They looked like stones up there. 
And he changed the way science is done and what science regards as its purview. So nice. Um, they named him twice Galileo Galilei, right? Yes, right. Yes. And then came a guy named Anton von Leeuwenhoek, who used the same sort of technology. He was a draper in Amsterdam, which meant he imported fabrics. Global trade was a big thing back in those days. Um, and uh, he used a magnifying glass to look, horizontal, look horizontally at the cloth he'd imported to see how fine and perfect the weave was. And then he came up with an idea. He ground his lens a little bit differently. And instead of looking horizontally, he looked down. He looked at uh, water from a pond and he discovered it was filled with these invisible creatures with which we had been sharing the world ever since we first evolved and didn't know they were there. Mm -hmm. he, he invented the microscope. And so my parents are pulling at my ankles and I'm holding on to the doorframe, refusing to go. And I have a sudden realization. There are no gods in this picture because I don't believe in God. So there's no God in the heaven. There are no devils beneath the earth. Nothing supernatural. And yet the passion with which my parents are willing to drag their firstborn son up the street is astonishing. And if that passion exists in them, that passion must exist somewhere in me, which means those are the gods inside of us. The gods inside of us are a special emotional state. Um, and so if Galileo could turn his lens up and if um, von Leeuwenhoek could turn his lens down, then my job was to turn the lens inside and find the gods inside of us. So in the name of group behavior, the, the phrase that I got from Isaac Asimov, um, I became very obsessed with the gods inside of us, with ecstatic states, um, with transcendent states. And that's why when I was, I had a choice point. <clears throat> Damn it, I have a <laughs> frog in my Go throat. Go ahead, clear your throat. I've been doing the same thing. It's all right. <laughs> it's all right. Okay, now, so... I had a choice point. I graduated in NYU Magna Cum Laude and Phi Beta Kappa with four graduate school fellowships in neuroscience. And so I hold on, knew, you're jumping ahead, but I, so we were at your bar mitzvah. It's like what, mid 50s, 1950s, that's, that's, 1955, uh, 1956? 1955. And you're still in Buffalo at this point. And I was still in Buffalo. Yeah. So, and then when did you leave Buffalo and come to New York City? Oh, God, that's another long story. I've written a book called How I Accidentally Started the 60s. Um, Timothy Leary said some monumental masterpiece of American literature and filled with <laughs> wow, woo, and aha experiences. For, for those of you that don't know who Timothy Leary is, well, easy, the best thing to do will be to look him up. But how would you, a short, short description of who Timothy Leary was and his significance to American culture or world culture, really? Well, Timothy Leary was the god of the psychedelic movement. Did you ever and meet him? Uh, no. Uh, he read the book. Um, I mean, this is, this is a weird story. I, when I had finished writing How I Suddenly Started the 60s, back in 1995, the first version, um, I contacted a friend who had started his musical career with the Jefferson Airplane because I thought he might be able to get the book through the Was Jefferson Was that Yorma Kokonen's band? Uh, yes. I met yes. him once and I opened for him in Cleveland, Ohio at Peabody's Down Under <laughs> when Amazing. I was a student. Well, in those days, it was Grace Slick, the female lead yeah. singer who was known yeah. best for it. But 
Um, he said, no, 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 I've got a better idea. Send me the manuscript. I've got another client I want to get it to. So he got the manuscript. In those days, we had to type things, print things out, and they were this thick. The volume was that thick. And he sent it to this other mystery client. Um, and the other mystery client came back after two months with this extraordinary um, statement about the book, you know, a monumental masterpiece of American literature and, and uh, comparable to James Joyce. Um, there was many years later, I would be stuck in a bed for 15 years. And another author, friend of mine, Douglas Rushkoff, came over a couple of times to sit with me in my bedroom and converse. And one time he brought with him an artist, like the quintessential psychedelic artist from 1960s Haight-Ashbury, San Francisco. And both of them, it turned out, had sat with Timmy, Timothy Leary at his bedside for the last six months of his life. He was dying of prostate cancer. And I had a printer in my bedroom since I was restricted to my bed. And I printed out the quote from Timothy because I was convinced that my friend, Timothy's manager, had written this himself and then gotten Timothy Leary to sign off on it. I was absolutely convinced Timothy Leary could not have said the things that he said about my book. So I handed out copies of this statement from Timothy to both of them. And when they finished reading, there was this strange sepulchral silence in the room. And I knew exactly what was going on. They were trying to figure out, I was already bedridden. They were trying to figure out how to break it to me gently that Timothy Leary had not written this quote. Um, and then one of them finally opened his mouth. It was Doug. And he said, this is Tim. And you could feel the way that Timothy Leary had come back to them reading this quote. Well, it took me another 10 years to digest things and realize something. I wrote this book after I became so ill that I spent 15 years in a bed. And the only things that were lifting me out of the misery of those years in bed at that point for me were, um, were oh, what's his name again? The guy who wrote Jeeves the Butler. Um, at any rate, were... I want to throw in that what you were suffering from then and... I believe you still have this, correct? Well, it's chronic, chronic fatigue, fatigue syndrome. syndrome. I've, I've overcome it. You um, have overcome it? Yes, I've overcome Good. it. Good. When, when are we hanging out? <laughs> well, you know, I just <laughs> last night did my usual six and a half miles um, in Prospect Park. So Excellent. I'm, I'm well over it. So at any rate, P.G. Wodehouse and Dave Barry were two people whose humor was so transcendent that it lifted me out of the misery of my state. So I tried to write up to the standards of P.G. Wodehouse and Dave Barry. And what I didn't know was that my book arrived as Tim Leary was laying there dying of prostate cancer. And the same way that P.G. Wodehouse and Dave Barry had lifted me out of my misery, my book had apparently done that for Timothy Leary. Just astonishing. Not many people can say that. No, and you don't expect it. When you write a book, you know that you're a mere mortal um, and that what you've written is filled with mere mortality yeah. and limitations. And that's that's all you focus on. Now, is is the movie Leaving Las Vegas 
Um, I don't know. What's, what's isn't, that movie? Isn't that, is, isn't Timothy Leary the character, the main character? Isn't Johnny I, I, Depp playing I, Timothy Leary? I don't I, know. I have to look, look this up. I have to yeah. look this up, but it's okay. I, I, I believe that's, um, I believe that's the case, but all right. So we're jumping around, but uh, I mean, there is so much, you know, maybe this will be episode part one of Howard Bloom <laughs> on making sound with Jan Close because this is, there's so much to talk about, but I want to start getting into the music thing. So 1955, you know, Bar Mitzvah, you're, at, you're moving to New York in would have been what, like around late 50s, 60, early uh, 60s? I, I finally came to New York in 1964. 1964. And so you're, you're attending NYU, New York University? I was attending NYU. That's what brought me and, to New York City. But for, for science? Um, science no, I'm, science was so basic to me. Look, when I was 12, um, a girl in my eighth grade class had turned her eyes in my direction, which never happened, John. And then she <laughs> done something even more startling. She made eye contact. Mm. And she told me, I told my mom that you understand the theory of relativity. Well, in that year, it was said that only seven people on the face of the earth could understand the theory of relativity. So as soon as school got out, I jumped on my bicycle. I pedaled down to the local library where you know that the librarians knew me better than my mother did. Yep. And I said, give me everything you've got on relativity. And they rummaged through the shelves and they came up with a great big fat book by Einstein and two collaborators and a little tiny skinny book by Einstein himself. So I put those in my bicycle rack and I raced home as fast as I could and went up to my bedroom and started reading the big fat book because I had come, I had realized by then that if you put yourself through the most difficult thing, something you don't think you understand, by the time you reach the end, you have understood something. Mm -hmm. um, but at eight o'clock, I'd only gotten 50 pages into the book. Why? It was seven words of English on each page, and the rest was all mathematical formulae. And I never have understood math mathematical formulae. Mm -hmm in my life. Um, although I do dissect some in my book, The God Problem, to give you a sense of what they really mean. But nonetheless, I realized, okay, I have two hours left before my mom puts me to bed. And I'm not getting anywhere with this book. So I picked up reluctantly the little skinny book. And in the introduction by Einstein himself, it was as if he had reached out through the pages, grabbed me by the front of my shirt, put his nose up to mine, and said, schmuck, listen up. To be a genius, it's not enough to be able to come up with a theory only seven men in the world can understand. To be a genius, you have to be able to come up with that theory and then express it so clearly that anyone with a high school education and a reasonable degree of intelligence can understand it. So Einstein had given me my walking orders. If you're going to be an original scientific thinker, which frankly on is the only thing on this planet I can be, um, then you are going to have to become a writer and not just a writer, a writer whose work is so superb that people cannot put it down, whose words read like mixed chocolates in a box um, or the dessert tray at your favorite restaurant. Um, so he put me on a mission to learn how to write. So when I got to NYU after accidentally helping start the hippie movement, the story of which is in how I accidentally, how I accidentally started the 60s, um, I signed up as an English literature major because I wanted my professors to stand over me with a whip and make me write. Okay. 
this is, yes, we're going to get back to that. But now I have to ask you, the girl. Right. Oh, that the looks next at day. you. Okay. The girl that looks at you and makes eye contact when you're 12. How did that make you pick up Einstein? I didn't want to be humiliated at school the next day. Um, I wanted to be able to answer her question, yes, that I understood the theory of relativity. Um, I had the, the kids. Did she in my, ask you? Yeah. The kids in my, no, she didn't. The next day she ignored me as usual. Um, but the fact is that the kids in my class who ignored me always um, at least acknowledged me in one form. Hmm. They called me the sickly scientist. Hmm. So, and were you I sick? Need, were you sick a lot? I don't think so. No, um, not in those years. Hmm. Um, so, but I was a scrawny, ninety-nine pound weakling and yeah, a yeah, tiny yeah. kid. Right. So, the second smallest in my class. Mm-hmm. Um, so, at any rate, I really set off on the process of teaching myself to write, and the headmaster. At my, I next went into a, a private school called the Park School of Buffalo. Thank God my parents were able to send me because it saved my life. Mm-hmm. And the headmaster gave a course. He had gotten into Harvard as a legacy student. His name was E. Barton Chapin, and the Chapins are very big in Boston. And so they let him into Harvard, even though academically he didn't qualify. And Getting through Harvard was sheer hell for him. And he signed up for a cram course with some Jewish guy who ran a cram course class. Um, And they tried to teach him how to make it successfully through Harvard. And he took the lessons he had learned and he unleashed them on us, his seniors. Mm -hmm. And he made us write one story a night, six days a week. What was his name again? E. Burton Chapin, Jr., Mm-hmm. from an aristocratic Boston family. Mm-hmm. So, but making us write a story a week and and not giving us a topic, we were going to have to come up with this topic on our own. He was preparing us for paper and pencil exams where you get a booklet and you have to fill it um, at Harvard. Um, and I loved this. I started writing political commentaries every night, geopolitical commentaries every night. And I'm still doing that. These days I do it on 545 radio stations every Wednesday night, mm-hmm. a geopolitical commentary. Mm-hmm. Um, so that helped. Meanwhile, my best friend and I, I was very lucky to have any friends at all. My best friend and I, he was another reject. Um, we discovered a book that at that point was called Shrunk on Style. It's apparently E.B. White. And it's a book about how to write. And we use that book as our Bible. So that's why I was so intent on learning to write that I signed up not for science because I'd spent half my life in science at that mm-hmm. point. I took that for granted. Um, but in writing where I felt I really needed to improve. And I took a minor in psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, I had gotten hepatitis mm-hmm. on a ski trip mm-hmm. when I was 16 years old. So I was relegated to a bed for the first time in my life. Um, I spent three months in that bed. The doctor said, do not move. The only time you're allowed to move is when you have to go to the bathroom. Here's a TV, watch TV. And instead of watching TV or in addition to watching TV, first I read all of James Joyce's Ulysses. And must confess, I didn't understand a word of it. 
mm. aside from the masturbation scene. Um, <laughs> Appreciate your honesty. Yes, and um, and I read um, my the there was a woman who came in to sponge bathe me since I wasn't allowed to do anything for myself, mm. um, and she well, had just well. put, she had just gone through psychology one hundred and one at the University of Buffalo, so she loaned me her textbook. And I put myself through that textbook from page one to the final page. So psychology, and especially what was called in those days, physiological psychology, the neuroscience underlying psychology became a territory of mine. When I was, I, I don't want to know what else you learned from that um, <laughs> experience. Woman. Right. So at any rate, uh, that that's we're, why I we're thought, unrated, you know, so you can say whatever yes. you want. Yeah. Well, then, in addition, my headmaster had been very good to me, and he had arranged for me to take a, a philosophy course mm -hmm. at the University of Buffalo when I was 16. And that course made a huge difference in my life because it focused on only two books, um, the Nicomachean Ethics of Aristotle and Thus Spock Zarathustra mm -hmm. from Nietzsche. Yeah. Oh, boy. Wow. So, uh, okay. So... This is uh, a lot to chew on, um, but I want to I want to uh, talk a little bit about service, right? Okay, because here you are, you know, gifted and very like a like the sponge that we were just talking about. You are the sponge, right? Right. You are extremely hungry for information. You are extremely hungry to digest this information and turn it into something that uh, you know is usable. Right for others and and also and mouthwatering and mouthwatering sure that makes you also feel sane because right. you need something that gives you yourself enjoyment and passion right. right that that feeds your own sort of you know it, it it was the same for me as a as a songwriter you know I I I knew I could sing people were pushing me into going into that direction you know but right. I wanted to write. And I, you know, I started writing songs when I was, well, I started making up songs probably when I was 13 or 14, but I didn't start writing songs until I was probably 16, 17. Right. And, you know, when I look at the first songs I wrote, I go, yeah, those were imperfect, you know, songs. Not that any song is perfect, because once it's perfect, then what are you going to do? But, uh, I mean, we as artists, we see certain songs, like I see certain Prince songs right. as perfect, because to me, they're perfect. I'm sure they're not to him or wouldn't, you know, because I'm sure he listened to them later on and got, and said, I would have changed this. I would have changed that. I would have changed this, you know, even if it was just some EQing on the guitar, okay, or on the vocal or whatever, you know, but I need this, I need this self-satisfaction, but I also right. want to be of service to others. I also want to, right. you know, yes, turn I off, to turn mute off that the, phone. Uh, you know, usually when when I start the show, I usually remind the guest to turn okay. off the phone, but I was so hang excited. Up, hang up, hang up, hang up. Well, ah. If it's important, answer it. I mean, my God. Oh, it's not important. It's a, and just say, hey, I'm on, I'm on making sound. For all I'm, practical purposes. I'm making sound. There, okay, we're going to turn sound. off the sound. Hang on. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm there we go. At that sign behind you in the window, and it says Einstein, and it says Michael Jackson. Right, Einstein, Einstein yeah. Michael. That's the cover of Einstein, Michael Jackson, and that's me. That's the book, right? Yes, they uh, search for sold on the me. power pits yeah. of rock and roll. Yeah. All oh. right. So, like, I want to get into rock and roll. 
you know, I want to get into rock and roll and the meaning of it. So you have this, you know, you have a trajectory already. And, and I'm assuming that, you know, you going to NYU, you know, was supported by your family and moving to New York City at, at the age of probably what, 18, 19? 19. Okay. So where in New York, in New York did you live? Well, I, uh, it was a long Brooklyn journey, now, right? you're, but you're... I, yeah, I eventually came to, uh, Manhattan. And did you live lived, in Manhattan then? I lived in Manhattan then. In the 60s, I, so 64. My parents had, had toured potential student housing, mm -hmm. and they'd found this lovely brownstone on 8th Avenue and Bleecker Street. Oh, my God. And, Are you kidding yeah, me? And uh, the people owning the building had taken their son's room. Their son had gone off to college, yeah. and they had divided it into two rental rooms. One rental room was the bedroom, and the other rental room had been the walk-in closet. So my parents looked at the bedroom, felt it was too expensive. It was $10 a month. No, um, no, and, please and, stop. Right. And they went for the closet, which was $5 a month. No way. And they, you lived in a closet. Yeah. So I was living in a closet Damn. and, and $5 uh, a month in the West village on bleak. Yeah. Street. But then once I got a girlfriend and that's a whole different set of adventures, finding you had to make $5 a month somehow. Well, I, I moved eventually into her place, and her place was a three-room apartment on, boy. On, on 7th Street between Avenue B and C, which was an incredibly rough neighborhood. Somebody was shot on the block literally every week. Um, it was this, the, the, the underculture. Alphabet City. Yes, exactly. Um, and she was paying $23 a month, so we split that. And I paid $11.50 and she paid $11.50. Your rent was broken up into a half dollar. That's how long right. ago this is. Jesus. So, That's and cool. then, um, then through a whole series of adventures, I ended up marrying my girlfriend. And, uh, and the two of us, she and I, she was accepted at a program at the Sorbonne, the most prestigious institute in france um she was doing it through a language program at middlebury college so i went to my french teachers um, you know i i didn't want to separate from her when she went to france so i went to my french teacher and asked if she could help me get into an exchange program to france and uh it was four months after the deadline for all of these programs and one of my french teachers was one of the top two commuse scholars in the world and she called a friend of hers at Hamilton College or something like that and basically said, I have this brilliant kid here and I know you're well four months past your deadline, but you absolutely have to admit him. And so I was supposed to go to France with my wife. And then her mother announced that she was going to come to help take care of my wife's five-year-old child. And I thought, oh, my God, if my wife's mother is, I'm going to France. This so was I not your child? No, this was a wow. child by a previous marriage. How old were you when you got married? I got married at 21. Oh my God. All right. So I realized that if her mother, I'm going so that I have access to somebody who's willing to have sex with me. Um, <laughs> if her mother is there. We can't do that. Oh and God. I ran this past a female friend who said, well, there's a simple answer. Marry her. So even though I previously refused to marry her, I called her and said, we're getting married. And that meant I had the parental responsibility for her five-year-old. 
And her five-year-old was about to go into first grade. How old was she? Uh, she was uh, she was five years older than I am. Mm-hmm. She was 25 or 26 mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, so I went, I, I canceled the trip to France. I said, look, our child is about to go into first grade. That's the most vital grade she'll ever be in. She has to learn how to read and she'll have to, have to learn how to write. And if she doesn't learn those things, um, she's going to be crippled for the rest of her life. She'll be part of the underclass. Um, so we cannot go to France. We cannot stick her with the challenge of a foreign language when there's already so much to learn in that particular year of her life. And I went to the head of the education, the graduate education program at NYU and said, where is there a school that I can afford in the, in the New York City area? And she said, you can either go to Riverdale or you can go to Brooklyn. Well, Jan, I had never been to Brooklyn. Brooklyn was used as the punchline in a joke. Um, I lived and, in Riverdale for a while. Well, it's uh, not the same as here. So I yeah. went to Riverdale. I didn't feel <clears throat> comfortable at all. And I went to Brooklyn. And Riverdale I felt, is in the Bronx, by the way, the boogie down Bronx. Right. And it's a fairly wealthy neighborhood. It's an upscale neighborhood. And um, so I went to Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and I felt suddenly at home. Mm. I felt among my people. And so we moved out to Cobble Hill so that we could get my daughter into a very good school, um, even though we were poorer than everybody else, else living around us. Mm-hmm. So that's... But, but. And are you still in school at the same time while the, all of this is happening as well? Yeah, I was in school. Yeah, wow. And I was wow. in school and, and I was embarrassed. And I was embarrassed because even though I paid no attention in grammar school, I when my parents decided that they might send me to this private school that would save my life. Um, They said, we will send you there on one condition and one condition only. You must promise us you will work. Well, I was doing my work with two books a day up until then. And I had a promise for me is a very serious thing. And I had promised my parents I would work at school. So now back to me uh, getting married um, about to get married. Um, my first two semesters at NYU were an embarrassment. Why? Because each of those two semesters, I got four A's and a B. And I was embarrassed by that B. So I did an analysis of the way that I was studying. I rearranged the way that I was studying. And for the next three years, I got nothing but A's, except for one A+. Um, so But in my junior year, for one thing, poetry was profoundly important to me, profoundly important. When I was 16 years old, I discovered two poems. One was a poem called Renaissance by Edna St. Vincent Millay. And it said, if you are to see the infinite and tiniest of things, then you must feel the sufferings and emotions of everyone in every kind of culture on this planet. So that became a mission for me. And the second was the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock by T.S. Eliot, which says, if you have something heroic to do that you think will define you, start it now. Start it this minute. Start it not tomorrow, not next month, but start it today. Because otherwise, you're going to find yourself eventually at a point in your life where you've run out of the life energy it would take to achieve this thing you think would define you. And you will no longer be able to achieve it at all. And your life will will pass meaninglessly. 
And thank you, everybody, for being part of the show. And have a great night. That's a joke. <laughs> no, I mean that is a wonderful thing to to think about, you know. So I, I, but here's here's the irony, you know. All of this is happening in your life, and you you you're taking on all of this responsibility, really, you know, to to marry someone that is already has a child, to take on a family, really, when you haven't even started your own, but it becomes your own family, and you're in New York, and you're in Cobble Hill. I mean, like that's also, you know. It, Brooklyn. Um, so, so I, I've got to, I got to ask you. So, the transition to servicing artists, it, to me, it it just sounds like the entire time that I've been talking to you, I, I'm thinking, I'm talking to an author, which you are, and I'm talking to a philosopher, which you are, I'm talking to a thinker, which you are, and. Not once have I felt I'm talking to a music publicist, which is how you became famous. Right. Well, it's, it's it's so very, back to poetry. Okay, I, those two poems that I just cited to you, the love yeah. song of J. Alfred Prufrock and Renaissance. I started going to jazz the one jazz club in Buffalo, New York, waiting till all the musicians had left the stage because musicians used to come there after their gigs doing weddings and bar mitzvahs and stuff like that. And they would play till two in the morning. So I would wait until they were finished and I would read these two poems to whoever was left in the audience. I would read these two poems wherever I could. And at that point, I felt I was trying to wake people up before they became soul dead. Mm -hmm. um, and what soul I Soul dead. Yes. Don't it, become soul dead, friends. Right. Never. And it took me 40 years to realize that I was not just reading those poems for others. I was reading them for me. Those were the mottos, mm -hmm. the goals that I lived by for the rest of my life, including today. Yeah. So I'm back I'm at NYU and I'm finally getting And you're living straight. on Bleecker Street. And I got to say, did you go down? Did you go down to the bitter end? And did um, you see Dylan? You know, did you see Tim Buckley? And No, 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 none of that. So at any rate, here's what happened. So... I'm obsessed with poetry and I start writing it at the age of 14. Um, and one of the constants on my shag rug, loop rug of my bedroom <laughs> is this brown book, book that fits in with the rug. It's very thick and it's an anthology. <laughs> it fits in with the rug. And it's a, an anthology of modern American poetry because that is how essential that book is to my life. So I was taking poetry courses from the poet in residence at NYU, a guy named Robert Hazel. And um, one day in my junior year, he said, Bloom, wait until everybody leaves the room. Close the door. We need to talk. This did not sound good, Jan. Not at all. So I waited until everybody left. I closed the door. I sat down in the bawling out chair across from his desk. Um, and he said, look, you, last year I asked you to be on the staff of Literary Magazine. You never even showed up. This year, I'm telling you, you are the editor of the literary magazine. The minute you walk out that door, I mean, you don't even have a faculty advisor. The minute you walk out that door, you're it. Now walk out that door. So I, I stood in the corridor outside, his, outside the room, just thunderstruck, because to me, literary magazines were the most boring things on the face of the planet. They, they come with these pale blue eggshell 
colors. Uh, they have horrible typeface choices on the cover. They're uninviting inside. Your first foray into image. Right. So, uh, so a kid saw me and said, you look like you're in trouble. Could I help you with something? And I said, yes, I, I've just been made the editor of the literary magazine. So my feeling was that the literary music magazines were so dull that you could go to a rip-roaring orgy. Um, you could throw a literary magazine into the room and you could empty the room in five minutes. So this... I know why you got that job. Right. So this kid <laughs> invited me to have a cup of coffee. Now, I didn't grow up with other human beings, Jan. Mm -hmm. I never had experienced the ritual of a cup of coffee before. No one had ever invited me. So we went down to a coffee shop. I ordered water. He ordered coffee. And he asked me one of the most important questions of my life. If you could do anything you want with this magazine, what would it be? And I said, a picture book. So I went out looking for visual artists. And the magazine, and we put the magazine out. It was called the Washington Square Review in a 12 by 12 inch format, which nobody had ever seen for a magazine. Do you still have of, copies of the original? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And um, and on a kind of paper that no magazine has ever been on in before. And the magazine created an absolute uproar. It won two National Academy of Poets Prizes. And I was summoned to meet with the Student Activities Committee. And Jan, I didn't even know we had a Student Activities Committee. Um, but apparently that's where my budget was coming from. So I walked into the room wondering what the hell they wanted with me. I'm irrelevant. And they said, uh, look, the magazine was fabulous. We're doubling your budget for the second issue. Jan, how many times of your life has somebody pulled you in and said, I'm doubling your budget? Um, well, who was on the cover? Um, it, there was a geometric cover um, that simply said the Washington Square Review in orange, red, and blue. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, it said Washington Square Review in, in white knockout type. Now, Washington Square, for all you non-New Yorkers out there, is a, a park right. near or practically or across in the street New York University. Right. In, it kind of like divides the West Village and, you know, the middle of Manhattan, right in there. It's kind of like right down the middle. And uh, so you, you lived, if you were on 8th Avenue in your closet, um, you would have been a 10 minute, five minute walk from yes. Washington Square. Right. Washington and Square Washington Park. Square is where people like Bob Dylan and uh, Paul Simon got their start because in those days, people singer songwriters. I've met one of those two people. Uh, which one? Paul Simon. Ah, okay. He's my he's hero. The, he's the one I, I work with too. Well, so I have to ask you about him too. Okay, so I gathered this uh, art staff, and um, and I accepted the fellowship from Columbia University. Um, and but I, I started well. I started the summer. I had for four years. I had just taken on school to have an artificial goal. And um, the day classes ended, I was severely depressed because the whole structure of my life was being yanked away from me. So I sat with a huge bottle of Valium, contemplating taking the whole thing. And, you know, what, really what happened, Howard? What happened? Well, I was depressed. And so a friend from across the street who had been one of the original beatniks um, and whose husband 
um, one of Allen Ginsberg's poems was dedicated to. Um, she said, no, you're not going to commit suicide. Come and stay with me. So I went over and stayed with her. Meanwhile, my wife conferred with my uncle, who was a doctor, and they decided I should be institutionalized. And they sent me off for two weeks in a mental institute, oh, which no. was two of oh, the God. most greatest learning experiences, one of the greatest learning experiences I ever had. You learned how to get the hell out of there. Well, I also, there was a guy who was crazy and my age, and he walked around name dropping, but you never, you never heard any of the names. He, he cited them with such authority. You thought that the only reason that you didn't know them was because you were too ignorant. Wow. Um, and he used it as a kind of hierarchical ladder jumping trick. Um, Sounds crazy indeed. So I learned that that can work. And uh, and then they let me out and I hadn't lined up a summer job. And I walked into the apartment of the most brilliant of my artists. And he there was no furniture in the room. There was a wall to wall carpet. That was it. He, his wife and his three year old son were sitting on the floor and they were all crying. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, we don't have any money. We're being thrown out of our apartment. Our electricity is being cut off. Our phone is being cut off. And I said, look, you're fucking brilliant. Give me your portfolio. I'll go out for two weeks with your portfolio. I will get you enough work to pay your rent. And then I can find a summer job. Well, it didn't work out that way. Who um, was this? This was a guy named Peter Bramley. If you look him up online, you'll see some amazing work, including a portrait of me. Um, and um, so at the end of the month, I had gotten New York Magazine interested um, in doing a, 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 an article on us, a feature, but I hadn't sold any of his work. By the way, he had said, well, if you're going to take out my work, you have to take out the work of my best friend, too, because we came to New York to start an art studio together. And his friend's work was nauseating. But if that was the condition of raising enough money to let him live in his apartment, um, then, okay, I was willing to go along with it. Mm -hmm. So the end of the summer came and I did had you just call up New York. Like, did you just pick up the phone and call New York University or did you know somebody there? Um, you mean I mean, New, New York magazine? magazine. I knew nobody. So I used the yellow pages. I compiled lists of potent now potential people. Somewhere. Yeah. People who I didn't know who might be interested in using this dynamite artwork. And um, every morning I spent lining up uh, meetings to show people a portfolio. And every afternoon I went out to office after office after office um, showing the portfolio. And by the end of the summer, I'd gotten nowhere. But I'm obsessive compulsive and I don't like to leave a project unfinished. My Most important, my wife was telling me that she was tired of having student husbands. And that meant that if I continued to be a student, um, I would lose the only woman willing to sleep with me on planet Earth. Um, <laughs> Go on. But there's, there's another factor. Um, I regarded grad school as Auschwitz for the mind. Why? Wow. Because here I was fascinated with the transcendent experience with the ecstatic experience and what that means for group behavior and, indiv and individual psychology, mm -hmm. your individual emotions, my individual emotions. And 
I was going to be stuck for the rest of my life giving paper and pencil tests to 22 college students who were doing this only because they could get a psychology credit from it. Um, and where would I see the transcendent experiences, the ecstatic experiences? Nowhere. I would have no access to them whatsoever. But if I went into this area I knew nothing about, popular culture, I was far more likely to find the lands where the gods are. Yeah. So it was an artist. It was a an illustrator. A, is that what he was? Peter he was a cartoonist. Bramley? Cartoonist? Yeah. Was, yeah. So, so that's so interesting. So, but it makes sense because you were, you know, you, you ran the magazine, which right. is visual and, right. and, uh, and literary. I art directed and, the magazine. Yeah. Interesting. So it, it's really, so it's interesting. So, so the, the, that really is pop culture, isn't it? I mean, because it's, um, I mean, I have to think of, you know, uh, Liechtenstein and people like that and Warhol, right. you know, who, who used illustrations to tell stories. Right. And we, in our second issue, um, I called it the death and sex issue. And I brought in a very commercial short story, which Peter Bramley, my brilliant artist, illustrated. Um, it was a five color printing because we our budget had been doubled. It was the usual colors plus silver. Um, it was all black and silver. It was startling. And when it came out, nobody on the NYU campus would talk to me about it. One day I was coming down a street in one direction. Robert Hazel was coming down a street catty corner to me. We met at the corner by accident. I'm sure he would have avoided me if he could see me coming. And I asked him what he thought of the magazine. And he said, did you have to put that poem by your friend Jason Schneider that starts with masturbation in there? That's all. So you would think that I had failed. But I started getting calls from the art director at Look Magazine, who wanted to have a meeting with me, um, the art director at Evergreen Review, which was the leading bohemian magazine in the world at that point, uh -huh. who wanted to have a meeting with me, and the art director at Boys Life, of all things, the Boy hey, Scout magazine. Oh, my, are you kidding me, really? I no, and, and I course, was thrown out. Wow, that was a different time. But like one thing is still true, sex sells. Yeah, sex sells for good reason. I mean, my whole new book that I'm, mostly finished with um, is the case of the sexual cosmos. Everything you know about nature is wrong. I want and you it, to interview me for this. <laughs> <laughs> Did you like that? Did you like my pitch there? Right. So, okay. All right. Cool. All right. So we have to, I, I have to kind of, I have to keep it rolling along, but again, will you please come on for another episode? Oh yes, absolutely. A part two. Yes. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I'm so thrilled. I mean, like there's so much to talk about, but I want to get a little bit into how, how art and literature turned into rock and roll. So just, just give me the, give me the next kind of, because there's always a juncture in everyone's life. Right. And there is these things that happen. Everything happens for a reason. Everything happens as a repercussion of what you did. Right. Before. And so you're, you're starting to gain interest by people that you've never met. Right. In to your work and your, right. your publishing efforts, really. Right. You know, and your effort. Did you write for the magazine as well? Um, one day, well, I started co-designing clothing with a designer who had a, a, a shop 
about four blocks away from where we were on the Lower East Side. We mean in Cloud Studio, my art studio. This is after you moved to Alphabet City. Uh, this is after Lower I East moved out to Brooklyn. I was living in Brooklyn. Okay, by you were, okay, you were in Brooklyn already. Okay. So at any rate, um, I there was a new fashion magazine, an underground fashion magazine called Rags, and it was being bankrolled by Baron Woolman, who had bankrolled Rolling Stone. Mm-hmm. So I was constantly on the lookout for new potential clients. Jan Wenner. Um, yes. My name so, cousin. Really? So yes, that's right. So I I went to, of all things, an office in the in the um, garment district, which was can you totally... Give us a, can you give us a year just so we can have yeah, context? Yeah, it would have been about 1970. Wow. Um, and, um, and I went up the freight elevator to the fourth floor and the freight elevator's doors parted and I walked into the room expecting to put our portfolio on a table and have the three women in the room ooing and ah over it. And that never <laughs> happened, John, because when I got one step out of the elevator, all three women looked at me with jaws dropping and they looked at the clothing I was wearing. Oh boy. And, and they said, do you have more of these? And I said, yes, I have a closet of them. Why? And they said, do you think you could write an article about these? So I wrote the article and they made me a contributing editor and I wrote 175 articles for them. Please tell me you have a picture of this outfit you were wearing. Yes, when you were, I do. Like, exiting I, the elevator. <laughs> well, I have a picture of one of them, the picture that they used in rags. Um, wow. And, uh, and then another contributing editor set, decided she was going to start her own magazine, Natural Lifestyles. And she asked me um, to be a contributing editor. So you were starting to get paid per article? Uh, yes, I got paid small amounts per article. Yeah, like a few bucks? Yeah, I it? don't even remember being paid. It wasn't my interest. My interest was doing these articles mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and living up to the assignment. So and she was an investor in Rolling Stone magazine? Um, it was Baron Woolman. He was an investor in Rolling Stone. He yeah, and and he and Rolling Stone had already been going on. Like when oh, did yes. John Winter start that in like sixty? Uh, probably six? in nineteen sixty-eight or something like that, or nineteen sixty-five, okay. somewhere around there. Like wasn't um, John Lennon on the first episode? I'm not uh, sure. First to cover like he was a Rolling Stone. Right? I, I wasn't. I wasn't following it. Right. So had but, you heard? Had you heard about it? Um, I knew Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone was already an institution. Mm. It was already the anchor point for rock and roll music. Um, but at any rate, um, so my artists, okay. I was, I was walking in to people like Maddie Simmons. Maddie Simmons had helped invent something for American Express called the credit card. Oh my God. And Maddie Ma- Simmons. Yes. And now Maddie wanted to be a magazine publisher. So first of all, he published one of my articles about drugs and sex in the private schools of New York. Fantastic, Tommy. And, and then he came <laughs> up with an idea. And his idea was there was a magazine that went on newsstands once a year. And every time it went on newsstands, it sold out within two hours. So he flew up to, and it came out of Harvard. So he flew up to Harvard to find the guys who were putting together this magazine. And he said, look, um, if you come to New York, and I will give you money for fabulous apartments. I will give you money that will attract women. I will give you money that will make you high in stature. 
Um, all you have to do is turn out this magazine on a monthly basis for me. And the magazine was the Lampoon and um, the National Lampoon. So my Maddie hired me in my art studio um, to art direct the National Lampoon. Now, remember, I had been forced to carry around the portfolio of an artist whose work was nauseating. Um, he wanted to take over the National Lampoon. He wanted to art direct the National Lampoon. And the what best was the way, Latin, what was the National Lampoon publishing until then? I don't know much about it. Uh, no, the National Lampoon started. We were doing the first seven issues of the National Lampoon. And, it was and so started was, around 1970. And it was Maddie. Maddie Simmons, Simmons was the publisher. Right. And so at any rate, so the this artist who wanted to take over the National Lampoon said to the other artists in the studio, look, thanks to the National Lampoon, we now have this huge check coming in every month. Um, Howard is getting a percentage of it. Why don't we throw Howard out of the studio and then we can take his percentage? And they all went for it, not realizing that there was something else underlying this power move. I mean, they voted me out of my own studio. Um, and what he was really after was to art direct the National Lampoon. And he art directed the first seven issues and his work was so nauseating that Cloud Studio lost that account. And then Peter Bramley, my most prized artist, the one who was brilliant, um, Peter Bramley died of alcoholism mm. because he didn't have someone like me to give him a backbone and bring in money for him and give him a role in, in turning his talents to something that society could use um, in the way you enunciated when you talked about finding the insane soul within yourself mm. and speaking it out loud uh, in your music mm. and finding 100 million other people who feel that same insanity and now feel a part of something, mm -hmm. not just individually insane, but a part of a movement. Mm -hmm. um, because that's what superstardom is really mm -hmm. all about, giving identity mm -hmm. to subcultures that, that ache to come into existence, yeah, yeah. that ache to have a voice. Yeah. And, and most ironically, what gives, what gives you the power to be their voice? It isn't your music, it isn't, it isn't just your music, it isn't just your lyrics, it's your body stance when you go on stage. Um, everybody knows that Joan Jett is like this. Everybody knows that John Mellencamp is like this. And there's a big difference. And Billy Idol makes his statements not through the lyrics to White Wedding, but through the way he handles himself on stage. Yeah, and wow. these mm -hmm. ways of handling yourself are not voluntary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, they are you without you even knowing that they exist. It's yeah. like the singer you were told you were with and coaching who automatically makes movements yeah. that, that are part of his singing. They're a part of his self-expression. And that's what brings you across to your audience. Strange, a wordless thing, mm -hmm. becoming the voice of an audience. Mm -hmm. So at any rate, I started um before we i was voted out of the studio um and i was going to absolutely everything that possibly use graphics i went up to abc radio abc owned seven fm stations and abc was about to take a chance on a new format that had been promoted at a gathering of hippies on the most hippie of all campuses in the united states bard college and they called it progressive radio 
and otherwise known as rock radio, where a DJ could pick an album and play the whole thing from beginning to end if that's what he chose to do. Mm-hmm. The opposite of Top 40. Mm-hmm. And they, the ABC was going to take a huge gamble and it was going to take all of its seven of its radio stations and transition them into this new untried format at once. They could have lost their shirt. They could have lost their jobs. Um, and every time I, and they gave us the job of doing all the artwork for this transition, posters, stationery, everything you could think of. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and the promo promotion director up there started schooling me in rock and roll. She started giving me albums. She started giving me lectures. She started giving me insights. She started hooking me on popular music. And then one day she said, look, I have two tickets to a concert in Studio B. If I gave you those tickets, would you come? And I I owed her so many favors at this point, it was ridiculous. And I said, yes, I'll come. So I took Peter Bramley, my most brilliant artist with me. And there was a piano player on stage. And the piano, when the piano player started playing, Peter Bramley got to his feet and started whooping and hollering. And I was so embarrassed, it was ridiculous. I felt like shrinking down to the size of a gnat and escaping because everybody who's going to see this crazy guy was with me. And I had not, it would take me many decades to realize that Peter Bramley helped make that concert. Why? Because when you're on stage, you feed off the energy of the most engaged person in the audience. Yeah. And you try to spread that quality of engagement to all of the less engaged yeah. people around him. Mm-hmm. And if you have somebody who's on his feet, whooping and hollering the whole time and responding to your music, not doing something to gain attention, responding to your music, it energizes you. Peter Bramley was that energizer. Mm-hmm. The piano player on stage was named Elton John. Um, the concert you can find um, on God knows what YouTube or whatever you happen to use. It's a studio I, concert. I have to interject because two or three episodes ago, we had John uh, Elton John's longtime percussionist singer John Mayon, M A H O N, right, on making sound, and he's become a friend. And this was his second visit, just like you're going to be on a second time, right? And he came on a second time, and he talked from a hotel room, and he talked about the tour that you know because they're on Elton John's uh, farewell tour, right? They're actually, coming to to uh, to Madison Square Garden, I think I'm go- I think I'm going to go. Um, but anyway, so that's that is a unbelievable story, and I love how you illustrated that. That is exactly what you know. So did Elton respond to Peter? Oh yes, and I mean, and you were just sat there and went, and you wanted to just shrivel up. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I wanted to dig a hole and hide in it. So, but eventually, I would realize from my own performing experience. Mm-hmm. Um, that that person who is most enthusiastic is your energy source for the night. So at any rate, I was being schooled in rock and roll. I was part of the revolution of seven FM radio stations. I, I was so much a part of it that the um, that ABC asked me to form an advertising agency to work with them. And the only reason yes. I didn't do it is because the idea of learning time buying bores the hell out of me. I'm a after soul. I'm after the gods inside of you. I'm not, I don't want to be bogged down with trivial shit. Yeah. Um, so at any rate, when my artist voted me out of the studio, 
I was one night covering a, a parapsychology conference. I don't believe in parapsychology. I don't believe in telepathy or uh, moving things, spoons with bending spoons. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I'm their science person, so I should be covering their pseudoscience. So I'm at this pseudoscience convention. And because I'm a journalist there, um, I have a pad of paper always in my left hand. Prying it out of my left hand would be like removing my fingers. Do you still um, write with hand or do you, do you use digital now? I, I use digital, but I wouldn't trust digital. I, writing by hand is a very important exercise for yeah, certain things. I agree. I agree. So, so I'm scribbling every single detail, knowing that as vivid it is, as it is at the second, I will forget it in 10 seconds. Um, and somebody walks up to me. Uh, and uh, this good-looking kid, about two years younger than I am, and he says, would you like to edit a magazine? What? I mean, he sees I'm a journalist from all the notes I'm taking. And at this point, those 175 articles I did for uh, RAGS, plus the 25 or 30 articles I did for Natural Lifestyles, the way I'm able to do this is by getting up at six in the morning, going naked to a giant Remington manual typewriter whose keys you have to hit with a sledgehammer in order to get them to register your presence um, and typing for two hours, writing for two hours, and then putting on my Susan Harris design clothes and going into the studio and building the studio all day and then coming home and going back to the Remington typewriter until 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. And this is beginning to tire me. Um, so when he says, would you, would you want to edit a magazine? I instantly think, wow, if I edited a magazine, I could start my writing at nine in the morning or 10 in the morning or whenever they start and do a regular nine to five. This is next level shit. Yeah. Nine to five day. Yeah. So I said, yes. Mm -hmm. And um, he gave me an address and a name and set up an appointment for me. And now, Jan, it's hard to realize that once upon a time, we didn't have Google. Mm -hmm. And because we didn't have Google, there was no way I could look this person up. There was no way I could find out what kind of magazine he was talking about. But when I was 11 years old, I was thrown out of the Boy Scouts for incompetence at Morse code. <laughs> and if they hadn't thrown me out for incompetence at Morse code, they could have thrown me out for incompetence at not time. Uh -huh. And but um, after my my. June, my, my freshman year of college, I got a job writing. And who was it for? The Boy Scouts of America. Mm -hmm. So I rewrote their handbook on stalking and tracking. I rewrote their handbook on camouflage. And even though I can't find my way into the woods, much less out of the woods, I researched these things and cared deeply. I wanted any kid who read my book on stalking and tracking to be able to drop down to his hands and knees and come so close to a bunny rabbit that the rabbit wouldn't even notice them until they were rubbing noses. Oh my God. All right, so now you have to reveal two things. Well, one thing, the name of the person that hired you. Right, it was uh, Gerald, um, oh God, what was Jerry's name? Um, uh, I'm having memory problems, so uh, it'll come to me. Okay. But, but Jerry Rothberg. Jerry Gerald Rothberg. Rothberg. Yeah, Gerald Rothberg was the publisher of Circus Magazine. And uh -huh. so I expected the minute I heard Circus that it would be a magazine about clowns and elephants, 
And frankly, Jan, I have no interest in clowns and elephants whatsoever. But if I were given enough research material and if I cared about my audience, I could write about anything. That's what the Boy Scout job is. That's it. That's it. And on that and, note, it turned, on the... wait, it turned out to be a magazine about rock and roll. And that was it. That was the beginning. Yes. That was the beginning. Okay. Well, other than Elton John. So I want you to, I want us to, to leave off here. Right. Because I, I have to make dinner and I, and I'm, I'm at the limit of for, for uh, the episode length that I like to keep, which is about 75 to 90 minutes. Sometimes right. we go longer though. This one is longer actually, but I want you to come back. This is actually our last episode of the season of season four. Right. And I would love to pick up right where we left off with season five in September of 2022, the year that Good. we're currently, the year that we're currently in. Sounds good to me. Yes. All right. So this is what we'll do. This is what, how we'll do it. Um, I'm, I'm hooked. I'm hooked, man. Like <laughs> I, I am, you know, I'm also getting to know you through this a little bit, which is wonderful. Right. We, you know, not only do we share the same birthday, you know, you worked with some of my absolute favorite artists of all time, including Prince, which we didn't really get to talk about much, but I'm, we're, we're going to do that on your, on your revisit of episode 68. Terrific. Are literally our last episode of season four. So episode 68 will come out in September. Until then, folks, I have a couple of announcements to make. First off, I got to thank everybody that has been playing Sugar My, my new single. We have just risen to number 45 in the media-based charts in the U.S., which is a top 40 chart. It's a chart that keeps track of top 40 radio in the U.S. We're on about 12 stations in the U.S., or actually 14 stations now in the U.S., and on about the same amount in South Africa, where I grew up. So, and they just started playing Sugar Mai on the uh, biggest um, FM adult pop station in Johannesburg. They played it three times this week. So I have to, I have to thank everybody for that. And also everybody that came out to the California shows that I just played, that I just got back from, thank you for coming to the shows. It was great seeing everybody. And several people asked me about the podcast, which was cool. So I feel like people are starting to pay attention to, to, the, to the show a little bit more even. And I actually did a bunch of, uh, uh, I taped a bunch of the folks that I ran into at the NAM show in Anaheim, which was also the first one since the pandemic in two and a half years. So it was great to be there. And then also we have a new video out of, a, of the dancing of the Sugar My video and the instructions on how to do the dance, which for someone like me that isn't particularly fond of dancing, I love to move around, but you know, I'm not much of, you know, someone that can learn choreography. It, somewhere there's a block in my brain for that stuff, but there's an instructional video on YouTube on that now. And let me see, what else? Um, my next single, Flesh and Blood, which is another co-write with Alex Forbes, will come out July 22nd. So keep your eyes peeled for that, your eyes and ears. And then we're also going to start introducing a tier system to making sound where you can be part of the taping for a donation. So we are starting to transition, because I don't want to really start advertising, and I don't want to have advertisers, not yet anyway. Um, I want my listeners and you guys out there to become a part of the podcast and become part of the production team of the podcast. So we're looking for producers and executive producers that will come on and be a part of the show 
And you don't have to be special. You don't have to have produced anything else before. You can just come on and donate. And we'll do more on that next time around. And I'll start introducing that stuff on makingsoundpodcast.com, which is our website. And Howard Bloom is still here listening to me advertise myself. Which, uh, you know, is something that we all have to learn as artists. Like we have to not only create the product, we also have to be proud of it. And we have to tell a story of how we got here. Right. Like how we, you know, became who we are. And, And I kind of want to close with that thought because, you know, you said something and it was the two poems. It was one of the two poems that you recited that is to me was life-changing because I needed someone to give me permission to pursue a career in the arts, which is what everyone generally tells you not to do. And they say, don't do that. How are you going to make money? How are you going to survive? Right? This is how you're going to survive, folks, by doing it. So if you have that dream, don't give up on it. And uh, that's how I'm going to end. And happy birthday. Almost, Howard Bloom. Yes, happy birthday, Jan. And to me, we share yes. the same birthday, June twenty fifth. Right. And uh, wow, it's been a real pleasure, man. Thank you for being. Thank you for closing out the season and and opening the next one. Well, it's been terrific for me too, Jan. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I can't wait to continue the conversation. And thank you, everybody. Have a fantastic summer. I'll be in Germany the last week of July, the first week of August. So I hope to see my friends then. And we will see you next season, everybody. Thank you.